here at Watershed Riders, we want to send a shout out to Volcamas Riders community in Guelph. They are hosting their Book Bash at the Guelph Farmer's Market on Sunday, November 6th in the afternoon from 2 to 5 o'clock. Plenty of local writers and publishers will be converging on that space, and it'll be a great place to get some book deals and share in the local and the literary. So don't miss out. I uh, really love the title of this book, As Little As Nothing, and I was delighted to see that it comes from a poem by the great Polish poet and winner of the uh, Nobel Prize, Wisława Szymborska, clearly as someone that you've been reading since you lived in Poland in the 90s, and everyone should read her because she's awesome. And I'm always interested in uh, writers' reasons for choosing a particular title, because sometimes it's really hard to find a title for this thing that you've been working on for a long time. Why did this phrase, as little as nothing, appeal to you? She's such a great poet. Um, and I think I was I was really struggling to find a title for the for the book. I didn't want something that was sort of too on the nose, you know, like <laughs> just and it's, you know, because it's it's about women who are flying because it's reproductive rights. There was a few things happening, and I was looking through some of her poetry, and I came across this poem, The End and the Beginning. It really is written about the aftermath of war and, and cleaning up after the war, and and really the idea is how how little people know about what the, what war was going into it and how they're forced to go to pick up the pieces afterward. But that idea that how much they knew was as little as nothing. And I think that for me, that kind of felt like what was happening in, in that time period that I was writing about. So the whole year when they were talking about the war, pen, the pending war, whether it was coming, what would it look like? And in fact, erasing that historical knowledge that we have, that we know what it looked like. We've seen the films. You put yourself in that period and think how much they knew, and they knew as little as nothing. And that reminds me a little bit of your previous novel, The Deserters, that takes a close look at post-service PTSD experienced by a military veteran, a veteran of the Iraq War, I believe, right? Mm, yes. um, I wanted to know whether you come from a military family or whether you have another kind of experience that led you to write two novels about the personal complications of international conflict. <laughs> well, the short answer is no. <laughs> I don't know why I was drawn to write about war in both of these books, but I was. And I just, I think I don't understand war. And maybe it's it's my way. I mean, as I don't mean to oversimplify it because I know that, you know, war is complicated. But I think that there are, are there are things that we don't know about going into war and war is you know if we take war as an entity it, it is a big dramatic thing it, it it is is such a big thing that it's hard to even think about it in terms of you know writing about within it you know so so what i've been doing is writing around the edges what is a kind of mental state what is a kind of capacity we have as individuals to imagine what war might be going into it and what happens on the other side when we come out of it and think how damaged are we even if we are 
if it's not visible and if we're not even that close to the battlefield how damaged are we as as a people so so i'm i'm just kind of interested in i guess in that way i mean i have a huge sprawling family i've got aunts and cousins on it but i do have one cousin who was in the military actually when i was writing he still lives in the in the us and when i was writing the book i hadn't seen him for about 25 years and we happened to have christmas in new brunswick together and he was talking a little bit about being in war. So, and I was writing the book and he was going, why are you so interested in this? <laughs> you know, and I, and I kind of took a few uh, details as he was talking about his experience and I dropped those in the, bo- in, in the book. But, but no, we, for the most part, we are a non-military family and I've had no ex- uh, firsthand experience. Well, I want to talk then a, a little bit about your upcoming project. And I know you have a nonfiction project a nonfiction manuscript that you're working on and parts of it has have been published. I've read uh, your essay in the Literary Review of Canada, the essay titled That World Elsewhere, in which you discuss train travel's effect on the imagination. So looking at an annual trip that you make um, to the East Coast with your daughter and how it, how it makes you think and imagine the world differently. You also include this, I have to say, a, a hilarious and sad historical note, and I'm going to quote from the essay. We were not agitated by the speed of the train as we might have been at the dawn of the railways when there was a fear that women's constitutions were too weak and that the acceleration might cause their uteruses to fly from their bodies, unquote. So yes, yeah. I have definitely heard that about the early days of, of rail travel. I'm wondering if <laughs> if it was even possible for women to travel on the train and always a good reminder that our privileges have been tested <laughs> by generations before right. us, oh. including women who had to say to people, are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> right. That was an amazing quote when I found that. It just, I could have said so much. <laughs> So for you, what's the pivot point between fiction and nonfiction? Uh, what was the impetus for writing a nonfiction book at this time? Uh, the pivot point is a tricky one. You know, I have been really kind of interested in trains for a long time. I've taken the train for over 10 years now, 27 hours from Kitchener to Moncton with my daughter. It's been a great annual trip and, and I travel by train when I can. So I've been thinking about writing about train travel for a long time. When the pandemic came, you know, I thought, well... What better time to write about travel when you can't travel? So I I, I kind of just sat in in this room and and wrote about various train trips that I'd taken, and looked at the history, the social history of train, and also a kind of uh, just to sort of a, it became a kind of meditation on travel generally. So I guess the question about the pivot point is that I think that you know with with fiction. I am able to roam a little bit farther with in terms of bringing in characters, bringing in, you know, situations and things that I think that, you know, contribute to the story, whereas the spine of a, a nonfiction or the, you know, the kind of framework is 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 a bit more sort of laid out. But nonfiction is a kind of fiction, too. You know, I'm writing about trips that I took 20, 30 40 years ago like is that fiction is that is that nonfiction that i'm writing or is it a kind of fictionalized account it's my memory 
I'm piecing it together with some research of what, you know, train travel, some aspect of train travel. So I think that's what's really interesting now with kind of creative nonfiction is that it becomes such a, is the blur between that and 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 fiction. Both are moving in, within, in the other's territory because, of course, you have fiction, you have autofiction. They're both sort of tramping on each other's territory, so to speak. So, but I think it's all yeah. for the good. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. Do you have a title for the new collection? I do. It's called Off the Track, A Meditation on Train Journeys in the Year of No Travel. Ah, awesome. And will you read us a, a, a chunk of that? I can certainly do that. It's going to be published next year and I, we're still working on it, but I think this will be the, the opening sections. From my window, I see an angel in the garden of my neighbor, but one. This angel is about the size of an eight-year-old child and is alabaster white. From the back, for it is turned away from me, I see a gentle wave of hair that falls to the shoulders, a set of wings that shroud the body, like those hunched ones of an eagle, the feathers sculpted on the wings like tufted meringue. It is turned away from me now, but when it first appeared, I'm sure it was facing me. I try not to read anything into this. I can't remember if the angel appeared before or after the pandemic started, and again, I try not to read anything into its sudden appearance. I first saw it across the street when another neighbor was walking it out to the edge of the road with a sign that said, free, hanging around its neck. The neighbors who claimed it are not religious people, as far as I know, more likely to pray to the goddess of 70s rock music as they play in a band, evidenced by the steady drumbeat on Thursday nights coming from their basement. They are pleased with the legalization of pot. This view of the angel has been a constant in recent weeks, a welcome focus when I swivel my chair to look out the window, where before I saw only the brick house, the back deck, occasionally peopled with my next-door neighbors and their friends. Time slows, spring bursts forth, then retreats, the angel momentarily lost in a flurry of snow, and people talk of calm, a peacefulness that has descended like that persistent snow. Some talk of boredom, but we have not yet been stricken. The stillness constant, our house a ship becalmed. For the past ten years, on a day late in June, I have boarded a train in Kitchener with my daughter. Then, two trains and twenty-seven hours later, disembarked in Moncton. In those first moments as we roll out of town, we point out rat boxes behind the bread factory, fishermen on the shores of the Grand River. And, gaining speed, we poise ourselves at the window to catch a glimpse of what we've dubbed the Castle House, a garish paradox amidst this pastoral farmland, with its battlement roofs and gated boundary. Who are they trying to keep out, I wonder? Because from our window, we have the perfect view of the Castle House, albeit fleeting. It feels like our secret discovery and an intrusion on those owners who want to be seen and not seen. This seeing and not seeing is what we do during this entire journey. Our eyes drift to the outer landscape, to the panoramic view, then flicker back to that which is immediately before us, rushing by. This back and forth, this shifting perspective, is something we take for granted. So accustomed we are to this mode of travel, we would consider slow.